I know that uh, all the men in the room are already going to know all the things that I'm going to say, but, but for the women in the room, these are some of the rules that men live by, okay? Um, if you've ever wondered why we do the things we do, sometimes we're just following the rules, okay? So this might shed some light on some things for you. So for example, anytime a man is grilling meat, it's required that other men gather around the grill. It's just the rule. It just is. Um, anytime a man finishes tying down something on a trailer or in the bed of a truck, uh, he is required to say, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> right? It's, it's just a rule. It's a rule that we follow. Um, prior to using the power drill, you have to test it by giving the trigger a squeeze or two. Even if you just used it 15 seconds ago, it doesn't matter. You got to give it that squeeze. It's just a rule. It, it just is. Um, when you see strangers, you nod down. When you see friends, you nod up. <laughs> I, it's just a rule. I, it's, it's a rule that we follow. And, and finally, never, ever give another man help unless he asks you for it, okay? It doesn't matter if he's driving the car and he is completely lost. Don't give help unless he asks. It doesn't matter if he's, he's about to drop the entire armload of whatever he's carrying. Never step in and help unless he asks you to. It's just the rule. It's just how we are. For whatever reason, men, we don't like to ask for help, do we? we I mean, we'd rather suffer physical pain then admit we can't do something. Maybe <laughs> some women know that too, apparently, right? Maybe it's not as secretive as we might think. But, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, there's times in life where we need help. And that's not, not just men. It is men, but that's, that's women too, right? There's times in life where we just need help. We need to call out in the midst of distress and anguish. We, we all come to time and places where we need help. The question is, where or to whom do we turn in those times? Where do we turn? To whom do we turn? The psalm today that we're going to be looking at, Psalm 116, it begins by telling us that the Lord is the one to whom we ought to call in those times. And and, and I'm confident in my observation that the reason that we need to be encouraged to call upon the Lord is because too often that's not our first reaction. We don't call upon the Lord. If, it, if that's just what we did habitually, then there'd be no reason to encourage us to do it. But because we don't always turn there, Psalm 116 encourages us to do that. Too often we call on other things to help us when we are in distress. So, so for some, that call might go out to entertainment. If I can just forget my problems, then, then I don't have to confront them. Um, for some, the call might go out to substances. If, if I can just numb myself through alcohol or, or drugs of some kind, then maybe I won't feel the pain that, that I'm dealing with. Um, the call can go out to achievement. If, if, if I just advance at work or if I just earn more money, then, then I can rise above this distress that I'm feeling. Um, the call can go out to 
pornography or fantasy, if, if, if I can just make myself quickly feel better, then, then I'll be happier. Uh, for some, the call goes out to control. If I can just manipulate the situation according to my own desires, then I can stop this distress. I can stop it from coming, or I can stop it as it's currently happening. Um, for some, the call goes out to intellect. If I, can, if I can just look at all the angles, if I can find a solution, then, then I'll fix the problem. I can, I can handle the distress. Um, man, that's an area that I'm sure tempted to turn to when I face anguish and distress. Uh, but, but what each of us knows through experience is that we can call out to those things all that we want, but they don't really provide the deliverance that we need or that we desire deep down within us. We, we just know that. And in a way, those things are just like the idols to which people too often turned in the time of the Old Testament. Um, I, you know, I've, I've lost count how many times I've said this now in this sermon series, but there's purpose to the order of the Psalms. So, so in preparing to read Psalm 116 today, it's so important that we know something that was spoken of in Psalm 115. It's there for a reason. So, so listen to this description in Psalm 115 about, about idols. And this is starting in verse 4 of 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So all who had chosen to call out to those idols when they faced distress knew from experience that those idols weren't able to answer the call. And, and I think in response to those unresponsive idols, the author of Psalm 116 spoke from his own experience regarding the time when his call for help was answered. So we see in Psalm 115 that those idols don't respond, but in 116 we're given, we're given something different. So let me read the first, the first 11 verses of Psalm 116, and I would encourage you to follow along with me. The author says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. So already we're different than those idols. The Lord has heard. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. We'll stop right there for now. I, 
We're left to guess about the specific situation in which the author of this psalm found himself. We're not given a name for the author, so that doesn't help us either. Um, Because this psalm is in the fifth book within the psalms, we know that a, a, a probable setting would be the time when the Jews had returned from Jerusalem, uh, returned to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon, and, and had rebuilt the city and rebuilt the temple. And, and if that's the case, then it's possible that the author is reflecting on that distressing time in exile that, that he experienced there, how, how God had answered his call during the time of the exile, maybe even specifically answered it by bringing the people back to Jerusalem. So that's a possibility. Um, Another possibility is that the author's not speaking metaphorically when he says that he was in the snares of death and that his soul was delivered from death. He he very well could have been on the verge of physically dying when he called out to God, whether through sickness or enemy or or whatever. So, so, So that's another possibility. Whatever the, the exact nature is of the distress, there's a few things we can take from this psalm when we, when we consider the encouragement of the author to call out to God in our distress. And so we can see some things here. The first, we see that when we do call out to God, he does hear us, and he is quite capable of responding to us. And it stands in stark contrast to Psalm 115 with those idols, right? I mean, they were, the, those idols weren't capable of doing anything. They were created by human hands. Uh, they, were, they were even created to, they, they look like they had ears and eyes and, and mouths and all of that, but, but they were entirely incapable of responding in, in any manner. Couldn't be done. God, on the other hand, as the psalmist says in 116, he hears us when we call out to him. He hears us. He is the the creator, sovereign God, who's quite capable of responding to our call. Now, we, excuse me, we know from experience, don't we? God doesn't always respond in the way or according to the timing in which we think he should, right? Um, but it doesn't mean he can't hear us. It doesn't, doesn't mean that his hands are tied. It just simply means that he's God and, and we're not. That, that's, that's all that that means. We, we have to be humble enough <clears throat> to admit that, that, that we just aren't capable of knowing exactly why God works in the ways he does and at the time in which he does. Uh, we have to be we have to be humble enough to trust God's response when it doesn't make sense to us. It's not that he's not listening. It's not that he isn't responding or can't respond. It's just that he is God and he is above us. And so regardless of how God responds when we call out to him, he does hear and, and he can act. And, and for that reason, we ought to call out to him in our distress rather than any of those other idols, the, the things that, that I mentioned off the top. We ought to call out to God instead of those other things. So we see that in the psalm for sure, that God hears us and he can respond. But in addition to that, when God does respond, we see in this psalm that, that his response to us is one filled 
with mercy. Mercy. In verse 5, we're reminded that God is merciful. Mercy is central to God's character. And we see that in other places in Scripture as well. Uh, Psalm 145, 8 and 9 tells us that God is merciful. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Yeah, and and that's alluded to in verse uh, 7 of our psalm. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's not that God has just a little bit of mercy and he has to ration it out so, so that he doesn't run out of his mercy. He's rich in mercy and has more than enough for each and every person on the face of the earth. He's rich in mercy. And, and, and another passage that speaks of God's mercy is Exodus 34. And this one kind of really jumped out at me these past couple weeks. So earlier in the book of Exodus, God gave the Ten Commandments to the people. Uh, Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai to receive them, and when he came back down, he found the people worshiping a deaf, voiceless, immobile idol, oddly enough, right? Like we were just talking about in Psalm 115. And in Moses' anger at that scene, he threw down the, the stone tablets to the ground and broke them. Well, later on, God wrote again on two new stone tablets. But as he prepared to do so that time, um, he, he described himself to Moses and to the people. And so we have to remember that this description of God is given to a group of people who not long before had turned to an idol when they faced distress in their life. And so here's what God says about himself. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 6. says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When, when God described himself to the people, I mean, what words did he use there? The first one on the list is mercy. God says, I am merciful. I mean, by his own admission, he is a merciful God. So when we are in distress and anguish, we ought to call out to him, not just because he hears us and can respond, but because he will respond in mercy. And I would encourage you, think about a time when you felt mercy toward someone else. And, and not just felt mercy, but, but showed mercy, responded with mercy to someone else. I can confidently say that God will not respond to you or me when we call out to him with any less mercy than that time we're thinking about in our minds. However much mercy we showed in that instance, God's not going to respond to us with any less mercy than that. It's, it's going to be more mercy. And, and because of that, we ought to call out to him when we are in distress. We see that from the psalmist here in Psalm 116. And, and so he hears us, he responds in mercy. And then finally, the other thing I think we see is that when we do call out to God, we don't need to convince him. Right? We don't need to convince him. Uh, the call from the author in verse 4 is, is short and sweet. He just says, deliver my soul. 
I mean, he gets right to the point. God, I'm in distress. I'm in anguish. Deliver my soul. The NIV has an even shorter statement. It just says, save me. I mean, that's it. God, save me. Uh, in, in verse 6, the author states that the Lord preserves the simple. Uh, he's speaking of the one with, with childlike faith. You know, the, it, it's not the one who has an endless supply of understanding. It's not the one who makes the situation complex. It's the simple. When we call out to God, he, he, he responds to us in, in our simplicity, right? At times in our immaturity, even in our wavering faith. When we call out to him, it's not required that we convince him to hear us and act mercifully toward us. We don't have to prove anything to God in order to elicit his attention and, and his response. And, and I couldn't help but thinking back to the story of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, because you can, you can see the, the two ways of thinking play out in that story. So, so in that story, Elijah sets up a showdown with, with those 450 prophets. And, and in the contest, the, the real God is supposed to prove himself by miraculously igniting a sacrificed animal on the altar. And so the prophets of Baal go first. They spend all day desperately trying to get Baal's attention so that, so that he might respond. Uh, from morning until noon, we're told, they call out to him without end. They're relentless. About noon, Elijah starts poking fun at them. You know, ah, maybe, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's in the bathroom, Elijah says. All right, try a little harder. And so at that point, the, they, they turn things up a notch. Um, they cry even louder. They begin to cut themselves, right? They, they think maybe, maybe if we're bleeding in our sincerity, Baal will see us and respond to us. I mean, th those 450 prophets operated under the assumption that they needed to get Baal's attention and convince him to respond. Elijah's view of the true God, it was quite different from that. Elijah steps up to his sacrifice on the altar, and he, he calmly and confidently prays this simple prayer. He says, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you've turned their hearts back. And that's it. And as soon as he says, amen, fire falls from the sky, burns up, not just the offering, but I always, I've always been fascinated. It burns the altar itself, the water that had been poured on, the offering even talks about burning the dirt on the ground. I mean, miraculous fire, but all he did was just step up and humbly say, God, would you answer me? So there's not a level of spiritual maturity needed to call out to God. There's, there's not a specific ritual that has to be followed in order to get him to respond. He doesn't need convincing. He's attentively waiting for us to call out to him. I think we see that in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 116. So the next time that you or I feel the pull to call out to all of those other things when we are in distress, may we see them as the idols that they are, as the liars that they are. Right? Those things might promise a response, 
They might promise deliverance to us, but they're liars. I mean, they're, they're as, as productive as a literal statue idol that just sits there and can't do anything. Instead, we ought to call out to the one who actually hears us and is rich in mercy toward us. And I am confident that God will hear us and give rest to our souls when we call out to him. And I think the author of Psalm 116 was confident in that as well. And that's why he went on in verse 12 through the end of the psalm, and he instructs us then, what do we do? How do we respond when God does answer us? When we call out to God in our distress and he responds, what do we do then? And so he continues in the psalm and speaks about that. So this is verse 12 down through the end. He says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So I think in this, the, the author gives us three ways in which we ought to call upon God. This time not to save us, that, that's the first part of the psalm, but this time in, in worship of him, in response to his hearing us and, and acting on our behalf. And as we go through these things, make sure to note how all three of these are public in nature. I, I don't think we can get away from that as we, as we look at these things. So first, first, we are to proclaim God's salvation. Uh, in, in verse 13, the author says that, that he'll lift up the cup of salvation. Uh, there's disagreement among Bible scholars about what exactly that statement means lifting up the cup of salvation. Uh, some would hear in that statement a link back to the, uh, to the drink offerings that are prescribed in the Old Testament. And, and we're not really given a lot of information in the Bible about those drink offerings, but we know that they were given in the temple in conjunction with, with other offerings, other sacrifices of worship to God. They would many times accompany those sacrifices. So some would see that. Others hear in that statement, lifting a cup of salvation. Others hear something more like a public toast, right? The author is lifting up his cup, which God has filled with salvation, that he might toast God, uh, you know, bring him honor because of what God has done in his life. Uh, no matter which interpretation we, we hold to of that, the action in verse 13 is one which proclaims God's glory and does so in a public manner. Either way, God's glory is proclaimed publicly. To, to lift up the cup of salvation is to publicly make known God's salvation. And, and I think we see that kind of response in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John are on their way to the temple to worship God, they come upon the crippled beggar um, who called out to them, and rather than, than uh, giving him money, 
they heal him in the name of Jesus. And what we are told then is that the formerly crippled beggar immediately leapt up and entered the temple praising God for what had just happened. He's, he's lifting up the cup of salvation. He's making it known. He publicly declares God's work. And, and we're told it caused many people to be filled with wonder and amazement. So publicly proclaiming God's work, his salvation in our lives. When, when we call out to God in our distress and when he responds to us in mercy, we must proclaim his works so that others might come to know him for who he is. Now, public speaking is not everybody's thing, right? You know, standing in front of large crowds is not everybody's thing. And that's fine. That's fine. But it, it, it doesn't give us a pass from lifting up the cup of salvation, that others might be told of God's work in our lives. That, that cup of salvation can be lifted up in the coffee shop, right? Sitting across from somebody, just sharing your story about how God has worked can be done through letters written. I mean, there's, it doesn't have to be a mass audience public way. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. But regardless, we're called to, to call out to God by lifting up that cup of salvation. Second thing, I think we see in the author, in the author a call to, to commit and submit ourselves to God. Um, twice in this psalm, the author talked about paying back his vows to the Lord. He said it word for word twice. Uh, he viewed himself as a, as a servant of God, wholly obedient as a servant ought to be. Um, and, and, and without going into too much detail, vows in the Old Testament could be made in response to God working in a person's life. So, so for example, in the book of First Samuel, we see Hannah she spoke of herself as God's servant and vowed that if God would bless her with a son, who ended up being Samuel, that, that she would give that son to the Lord. She saw herself as God's servant. She made a vow to him. Uh, we see it in Paul's life, this commitment and submission. He, he's walking on the Damascus Road, and he has his conversion experience, and God calls him to go far away to the Gentiles. Paul was a Jew. He grew up a Jew. I mean, he knew that Jewish system backwards and forwards, but God called him to go to the Gentiles. God told him he's not going to just testify about him in Jerusalem, the epicenter of the Jews, but Rome as well, the center of the Gentile world. And in, in response to that, when Paul was questioned by the Romans, he, on purpose, appealed to Caesar so that he would be forced to be taken to Rome. And so we, we see in Paul this commitment and submission to God's calling on his life. So, so when God responds to our call, when we cry out to him, we must commit ourselves and submit ourselves to him. We are his servant. And, and in case that sounds more like a sentence than a blessing, let's, let's, let's read verse 16 again, because I, I think we can maybe skip over the, the starkness of the statement. He says, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. What's his, what's his uh, perspective of serving God there? I mean, if he viewed servitude of God as punishment, then he wouldn't have in the same breath said that his bonds were loosed. He wouldn't have said that. 
But we know that Jesus proclaims that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We, we are indebted to him and we ought to submit ourselves to him in the presence of his people, knowing that our submission to God is actually true freedom. And that's why he can say it there. That's why he can say, I am your servant, and yet my bonds are loosened. There's true freedom in our service of God. And so commitment to God, submission to him, it, it's, it's one of the ways that we call out to him in worship. And we see that from the author here. And then finally, kind of tagging right along with that one, is giving God thanks sacrificially. We see that mentioned in verse 17. Giving God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now in the Old Testament, offerings of thanksgiving were taken to the temple. You would take a bull or a goat or, or a lamb. And after a portion of it was burned on the altar to God, consumed on the altar by fire, the rest of it was given back to the worshiper, and it was stipulated that it would be eaten by the next day. Now, let's not just rush past that. Think about, think about the logistics of that for a minute, because if we go too fast, we can, we can miss it. If I brought a bull, or even a lamb or a goat, for a thank offering, how am I going to consume that much meat by the end of the day? I'm not, right? Even if I'm really hungry, I'm not. It's more meat than I can consume, so I ought to invite others to come enjoy the meal with me. That was the expectation. The thank offering was meant to be offered on the altar and then eaten communally. That was one of the main points of it. Thanking God for his works wasn't supposed to be a private affair. It was a sacrifice which benefited the larger community and drew the larger community into worship. Otherwise, that stipulation to eat it by the end of the day wouldn't have been there. You know, you could have taken a week or two or however long the meat would have been good for to eat it. But when God says, no, it needs to be by the end of the day, you had to bring others into worship. But that's not just an Old Testament concept. We see that in the New Testament as well. So I would encourage you, this is from Romans chapter 12. I would encourage you to turn there with me and follow along. Um, Romans chapter 12 begins with the famous uh, statement about in light of God's mercy, right? So we've already talked about God's mercy earlier this morning. But in light of God's mercy, offering our bodies, offering our entire selves as a living sacrifice to God. This fits right in with Psalm 116. But I think too often we see the, the first two verses of Romans 12 as disconnected from the rest of the chapter. And, and it doesn't help that nearly every Bible translation puts a new heading right before verse 3. And so, you know, it kind of tells us in our mind, oh, something new is taking place. But instead of seeing verse 3 as something brand new... Let, let's read it as the original readers would have when those headings weren't there. Let, let's hear Paul develop the thought. So, so uh, you can follow with me, Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he goes on, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And, and the rest of the chapter then goes on and it talks further about loving one another and contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality, blessing those who persecute you, living peaceably, overcoming evil with good. In other words, presenting our bodies, presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice has everything to do with how we sacrifice ourselves for one another. It's a communal, public thing. You know, our sacrifice of thanksgiving under the new covenant of Jesus doesn't look like bringing an animal to the altar and eating the meat together. That was under the old covenant. In the new covenant, our sacrifice of thanksgiving is presenting ourselves completely to God and living sacrificially towards others. And Paul spells it out there, gives so many examples of it in chapter 12. So we ought to respond to God's work in our life by giving him thanks through our sacrificial living toward others, especially. We see it in the Old Testament, but we also see it carried over in the New Testament, in the New Covenant as well. So if we can kind of take a step back and, and look at the psalm as a whole, Psalm 116. We see that it's, a, it's about calling upon the Lord. Not only should we call upon the Lord when we are in distress or anguish, but we also ought to call upon the Lord in public worship, in response to his work in our lives. And I think a good question for, for us to ask ourselves this morning is, do I tend to forget to call upon the Lord in either one of those settings? In one of those, am I, am, I, am I tempted to forget that calling upon the Lord? When, I, when I'm faced with turmoil, do I call upon the Lord, or do I tend to first turn to those other things that we mentioned to, to seek deliverance? And can I honestly say that those other things have ever truly given me the deliverance that I desire? In anguish, in distress, do I call out, on the, call out to the Lord then? Or, when God delivers my soul, do I call upon the Lord in public worship? Or, or do I kind of just go, go my own way, do my own thing? Um, you know, when Jesus healed the ten lepers in Luke 17, am I like the nine who were never heard from again? Or, or am I like the one who came back to Jesus, returned to worship him and give him thanks because of what he had done? 
You know, do I, do I commit myself to Jesus as his servant to live and do according to his will, calling out to him in worship in that way? So, you know, no matter where we currently are, if, if, if there's turmoil in front of us, or if the turmoil is in the rearview mirror and we're, we're reflecting on God's work in our life through it, uh, our response ought to be to call out to the Lord in either circumstance. We can never get away from that, that encouragement, that call upon our lives to call upon the Lord whether the turmoil is in front or behind. We call out to him to deliver. We call out to him in worship. And we're so grateful that he is, he hears us, right? That he responds to us. That he's not like those idols that just sit there and do absolutely nothing. But that he's active and that he's loving and he's merciful in all that he does. It's why we can then respond in worship of him. Let's stand together and and as we come together in prayer this morning and, and then do call out to him and worship again through song as we close, let's, let's pray to God that he would be bringing us to himself each and every day in whatever situation it is that we're facing. Father, we come to you and we recognize that you do hear. And, and it's because of that, that that we ought to call to you. But at the same time, we know that we're fallen human beings and we still have this battle within us, this battle with our sinful nature, and at times it leads us to not call to you, whether in distress or in response to your work. God, we, we, we don't want to be that kind of person. We want to be one who calls out to you in any and every situation. And so would you help us in that? God, would you remind us to call out to you? Would you use, would you use one another here, uh, the relationships that we have with one another, to speak into each other's lives and remind each other to, to be calling out to you in, in both of those situations? God, I'm thankful that, uh, that you're always listening. You're listening for our cries of distress. You're listening for our cries of worship as well. And so we thank you for that. God, we humble ourselves before you this morning. May we be people who know. Know with confidence and certainty that we can call out to you. As we do that now through song, God, would you be honored? Would you be glorified? And even as we end singing these songs this morning, God, may we continue to call out to you as we walk out these doors and go throughout our week. May we never stop. God, we love you. We thank you. We're so grateful for your love and mercy toward us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.